Welcome to the Live Courageously podcast show of 23 of 2023. That's a tongue tie. Uh, I'm your host, John Duffy, and this is the 37th Live Courageously podcast show since I started the show a year and a half ago. Live Courageously has been the conscious theme of my life for the last three years since the beginning of the pandemic in 2020 and an unconscious theme for most of my life. Courage is the first of all human qualities because it is the quality which guarantees all others. So let's meet today's courageous guests. And my guest today is Dodosio Habi. And Dodosio was born in 1963. Dodosio served honorably in the United States Marine Corps and the United States Air Force. And on October 23, 1983, at 6.22 a.m., America experienced the horrors of war when a terrorist bombing kills 241 U.S. service members in Beirut, Lebanon. Memoirs in the Moment, his book uh, provides an honest look at the impact, experiences, and perspectives that challenge Mr. Habi, who was there on that fateful day. It provides gems of insights on how he has learned to manage his PTSD um, coming from that, and it shares the journey of living with the effects of PTSD. He is daring in his authentic and honest candor about the impact and the effects of PTSD in his life. He lived with PTSD for three decades before finally going to the VA for help. It is Ms. Habib's, Mr. Habib's hope that this work can help others concerned about or grappling with PTSD in their lives to realize a better life. Mr. Habib has been involved in community work since 2009 when he and a colleague began to get screened Oakland HIV H. Uh, AIDS awareness campaign in Oakland, California. He also worked as an associate for America Speaks, a 501c3 dedicated to bringing community together to discuss and resolve mirrored social issues. He has conducted outreach and convened meetings with communities, leveraging contacts to help address community concerns. He is also the co-founder of uh, Hummingbird Haven up in the Antelope Valley and continues his work in the field of mental health and helping veterans. So today, let's uh, welcome uh, um, Didocio to the show. Uh, welcome, Didocio. Um, thank you. Thank you for joining me, man. I, I appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate it as well. Well, I'm going to start with, you know, I it, usually I ask people where I met them, but I haven't met you in person yet. Uh, this is our first uh, in-person meeting. And, but I met you through your wife who uh, spoke at a program that I spoke at at the VA in West L.A. And yes. she told me your story. She told me about your book. And I called you and you immediately sent me a copy of the your memoirs in the moment. So I had a chance to uh, begin to read through that. And, and we're going to talk about that today. And you're going to share some of that. But since uh, getting past that one, uh, what is, uh, I always ask, what does live courageously mean to you in your life? Because you've definitely lived a courageous life. That's a, that's a great question. Uh, and for me, it's all about a moment by moment uh, endeavor to stay focused and also continue to believe in my goals. Uh, and not allow the negative messaging that's associated with PTSD to come in and defeat me. So each moment of each day, there's this, there's always this, this whisper, if you will, a dark whisper in my mind to saying that I'm not good enough or someone is out to get me or any number of different negative derogatory ideas that seem to pop in. And so I, I have to always practice uh, the various skills I've learned in order to maintain focus uh, 
and focus on my values more so than the perceived threats. Well, tell us, you know, I mean, you've had a long journey to, and I, I read uh, a lot of it in, in your book, but the audience clearly hasn't read your book yet, but they mm -hmm. should. Um, but where, where did you start out and, and tell, take us on that personal journey from your <laughs> beginning to uh, why and joining the Marine Corps of all places? Sure. So I was uh, born a middle child of five to, to a single mother in Savannah, Georgia um, in 1963. Um, we lived up and down between Savannah, Georgia and New York City until I was about 11. Um, and so we were always uh, struggling to survive. Um, modest upbringing, uh, modest family experience kind of thing. Um, my mother was always looking for the right kind of job, so there was always a struggle. But we had a lot of love, a lot of support in our family with our family members. So when I was in about the seventh grade, I met a gentleman named Darnell Legree who really impressed me. He was very popular with a lot of the other classmates very sports uh, oriented, uh, had a great sense of humor. So a lot of different things culminated and he and I became great friends. We graduated from the same school as well. And I went to college, uh, went to Savannah State University. I was 16 when I graduated, um, he was 17. So then what happened was we, um, I noticed that, uh, so one day he had, he had gone into the Marine Corps um while right after graduating and one day he was he was coming back home on leave and i saw him and i was so impressed on uh, by how he had evolved as an individual how he was so uh, in possession of his own self if you will he was confident he was directed he was self-directed he had a purpose and he knew where he was going in life and at that point in my life i needed that so I initially graduated to, uh, uh, um, I, I immediately uh, uh, gravitated towards it and I, I joined the Marine Corps. Well, I'm gonna throw up a picture of you, uh, a couple of pictures of you, uh, and you can tell us about that. This is one of uh, a picture that I got, and then here's another one. Um, um, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. So yeah. you joined the Marine the, Corps, how old were you? Like 18 years old at the, the time? The first picture, I was uh, 19 years old. Um, I, we, we, that was 1983, the beginning of 1983, we were in Tormina, Sicily, uh, uh, taking a three-day leave from Beirut uh, during that time. And, the, and that, those are some of my great friends who I still, they're great friends even to today. The second picture was a picture of me taking in my dress blues uh, at the Sepulveda Cemetery. Um, oftentimes I go there to pay respect to the, to, to the the service members who didn't quite make it home safely or alive. And so I just wanted to go there and pay my respects and uh, that shot happened to get taken. And that picture happened about oh, four years ago. Well, we uh, I, I directed a, a two short films, one uh, called The Flag, and we filmed it in um, that cemetery. And wow. basically we, we filmed the, uh, uh, a whole uh, thing in, in that particular. I'm going to have to send you a copy of that to get, gift you back for gifting me the book. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this is, you know, you're uh, in uh, on uh, vacation or a break from the service, and then you go back to uh, Beirut um, mm -hmm. in uh, 1983, correct? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
and so I'm going to uh, I'm going to jump right into this because okay. this is a, a, a transformational moment. Here's a, a, a picture um, that comes up, uh, you know, and I think that is the bomb, one of the uh, picture of the, one of the bombings in a yes. room. And yes. here's another picture. And I believe that's you in the red surrounded, yeah. I, I believe. Yes. So yeah. tell us a little bit about mm -hmm. that and, and tell us about that. And then we're going to okay. we're going to address this in two ways, because it was very a powerful moment in American history and in world history with that experience. And you were there. So tell us a little bit, just kind of give us the intro. I'm going to play a little short video okay. um, about Beirut. And then I'm also going to ask you to read from your uh, memoir okay. a bit so that you can share the story because you wrote it and you wrote it so powerful that mm -hmm. I think you reading it is going to be much more powerful than me. <laughs> trying to explain it. So tell Thank us you. just a little bit of intro before I jump into the video. Yeah, so um, the first picture was a picture of the the smoke cloud that happened as a result of the bombing. The bombing occurred at 6.22 in the morning, on the morning of 23 October 1983. Um, the building itself had been a converted um, uh, uh, hotel that many of the Marines were staying in, many other service members were staying in. Um, what's interesting that a lot of folk don't know is for a solid week before that actual bombing, the snipers on the other side became very, very active. And um, as a result, we lost some of our members prior to that as well. So on that, that the first picture, again, that was the picture of this. And, and you could see the smoke plume from miles away. It was that big. It was actually 22,000 pounds of enriched um, explosive that were provided to um, the adversary by the Russians. Um, and so just a lot of information uh, has come out since then about uh, what caused it, how things came about, that kind of thing. And all right, and, and let, let us go right into the um, the actual short video to give us a little bit, and then you can talk a little bit more about that as well. Okay. Um, so just give me a second to... Um, uh, and hold on one second. Let me just make sure I got the. Uh... And I believe, do you see it up there now? Yes. All right. So uh, let's go with. By the time I got to my weapons, I saw my hands, these hands, reaching for my weapons. And. Mm. Said, it's showtime, ladies. Uh, I yelled that, and, and everything else went black. Uh, when I woke up again, or I was being uh, recovered, and you know they they, they pulled me out. Um, they said we're going to take care of you. And I looked down, I could see debris and and rocks and rubble. And I'm trying to help these guys get me out. I'm trying to piece it together. I didn't know my, both my legs were broken, and I screamed like a, a banshee. Yeah, they got me over to triage, and like two or three days later, it's like eight of us in the room, and uh, um, um, forces network the TV. Uh, it's it's on the TV, and the names are scrolling, and it's complete silence. I remember watching the names, like damn, didn't make it, damn, didn't make it. Just and it just kept the damn didn't make it just kept going, and it wouldn't stop. It is my responsibility just to remind people. To remind, hey, we do we do exist. We did go over there. We did fight over there, and we lost people over there. Mm -hmm. 
Wow. Yeah, that's uh, hmm. that's my buddy Kevin Jiggets. He and I remain the best of friends. Um, we talk almost every day. He lives not far from here, uh, so we get together on a regular basis as well. Um, that encapsulates the very essence of what I'm about as well as we have to remind America of what happened. Uh, we have to stay vigilant and have to make sure that all of those who have given their life are properly respected and acknowledged for the sacrifice that they've made. I like to think that, so, so when the event occurred, I was on the Iwo Jima. And what happened is that they taught us how to uh, change IVs. And I like to think that during the course of me servicing some of the other Marines that I also serviced Jiggets back then as well. What's interesting is he, he and I didn't know each other in Beirut while we were in Beirut together, but we met uh, after about seven years ago after some other people had heard that I lived in the area. And um, it was from that moment to this that it was like I, I've known him all my life. So the connection, the bond that we share is very strong, uh, very deep. Um, it's about just being supportive of one another and caring for one another. Um, and that's pretty much who Jiggis is. Um, I, 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 there's people who you meet in life who you know are great. You just know they're great. He's one of them. Wow. Um, he 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 served the country. He he served. He he proved it by um, being in the blast. He was the only person out of his room who survived the blast, uh, and he has to manage that. He feels certain kinds of ways about that. And one of the things that's funny is he when he and I do talk about Beirut, he'll always say. He wished he had my experience, and I say I wish you had I had your experience, because for me there's a certain sense of uh, hopelessness, uh, of anger, of frustration that continues that persists even to today, because when everything happened, I was helpless to do anything uh, to make a difference. I should say the kind of difference I wanted to make. To be clear. Well, you know, you, uh, I'm going to kind of, we're going to go back and forth on this, but what I'd like to do is uh, you eventually wrote this book that yeah. shares uh, memoirs in the moment and um, the daily walk with PTSD and it's available on Amazon. And you wrote this book that tells the story of your life from, you know, growing up in Savannah to the, this time in, in the Marines. And of course there's a powerful section and that's the one I'm going to in a moment have you read um, about this thing, but, you know, cause this uh, affects you going forward, this oh, event. Yeah. And for, for us as civilians and for us that have never experienced war, you know, we can't really understand what you went through the, the kind mm -hmm. of personal way, because we weren't there. We, we never experienced it, but the effect it had to have on you, you're going to share that with us. Yeah. And I just think it's so, you know, for people to kind of at least try to understand, you know, you never can really understand unless you've lived it. But right. at least you can be uh, empathetic and be able to begin to understand what others have gone through. So yeah. this book, um, uh, once again, I'm going to just throw it up. Um, Memoirs in the Moment, uh, The Daily Walk of PTSD. Maybe right now, if you don't mind, I'm going to have you share those couple of pages of that sure. 
traumatic moments in Beirut that changed your life and so many other people's lives forever. Absolutely. Thank you. I'm honored. <clears throat> and if I, if I, um, sometimes it gets me emotionally, so I might take a breather. If I do, just bear with me. <clears throat> and I'm reading from page 40. Absolutely. On that morning, as I was heading to my work center, the ship went to, into general quarters as it steamed closer to the shoreline. Helicopters started taking off and, and heading inland. I could see Cobra attack helicopters letting loose salvos of missiles as and the corresponding explosions. We were told something had happened and to report to our duty stations for further notice. Shortly thereafter, the Marines were called together and it was explained there, it was explained to us there was an, a bombing and that wounded Marines were inbound. We had already determined that there had been a bombing by the sight of the huge plume of smoke we could see funneling into clouds, even from our offshore vantage point. We knew things had gone south in a very big way, but we had no idea of all the devastation we would be exposed to. We were called together and given instructions on how to change IVs as the wounded were now arriving. We formed a triage system and went from Marine to Marine to provide support. By the time we were in our flow of service to, 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 to Marine to provide support, I'm sorry, by the time we were in our flow of service, the entire inner bay of the Iwo Jima was full, was full of wounded Marines. I had heard of great feats of character and even read about them, but to see it in real life is more humbling than I could have imagined. I, not, I knelt beside so many wounded Marines, held their hands or looked into their eyes and I could see their determination. Their determination nurtured mine, and I found my anger going exponentially. These Marines were hurt, bad hurt, gaping wounds, burns, crushed body parts. It was tragic. And these Marines were valiant. They did not lose their cool even when so, so badly wounded, but instead they patiently waited to, to be attended to and they gladly allowed the medical staff to support the most wounded first. It was ennobling, invigorating, and horrific, all at the same time. We were all steadfast in our duties and did what we could to soothe the wounded Marines. It's hard to recall how long the process lasted, but I do recall wave after wave of helicopters coming in, full of the wounded or dying, and some who had already paid the ultimate sacrifice. It was an honor to be a Marine. I experienced a feeling of pride out as I went from one Marine to the next, doing what I could for them. These Marines conducted themselves with resolute maturity and congeniality, even as their broken and burned bodies were attended to. I wanted to do more. I wanted to go out and attack the enemy, those responsible for what had happened. It was surreal, maddling, maddening and humbling all at the same time. There was a point in time when no more wounded were coming in and a call came for volunteers to go inland to record, to recover any personal effects or other Marines. I volunteered and soon found myself on board a helicopter heading to the Beirut airport, where for our group, this part of the operation was coordinated. I remember looking out over the airport and seeing a state of organized disarray below. Marines and support personnel running everywhere. 
Tenders of smoke were still rising from the ruined building that was now just a mili- just an Im- immense pile of rubble. When we landed, the air was cordoned off and military personnel were strategically placed everywhere. The smell of explosive and burned items hung heavy in the air. I heard the I heard what sounded like someone sobbing, so I looked over, and to one side, uh, and to one side, a soldier was being consoled as he struggled with what he was seeing. Before things got too emotional, he was escorted away. We didn't stick around to see what happened next because time was of the essence and we had work to do. For me, this was part. This is when I experienced a deeper sense of the reality of where I was. It became acu- I became acutely aware that the shit had hit the fan and that I could become one more addition to the list of wounded or killed. We were divided into groups of four and given our perspective areas to, of operation. My group headed over and got to work. As peacekeepers, our rules of engagement required that we not fire upon the enemy unless we had been fired upon first. So when we went to on, on the recovery mission, we had helmets, flak jackets, and M16s, but no ammo. Naturally, requesting naturally requesting that, but had no choice but to adhere to protocol. We were reminded we were peace peacekeepers, and if we needed ammo, the Marine Corps would issue us ammo, but not until. Ultimately, this added to my sense of helplessness, and it stayed and it. Stoked my anger. Sure enough, we were fired upon by what I believe was a sniper, and my sense of helplessness and anger skyrocketed. Shortly thereafter, we heard a loud boom somewhere not too far away, which I later learned was a mortar fired toward us. We got the call to return to the base of operations, and we left immediately with our job unfinished. Even today, I grapple with what happened because it's so hard to believe it was actually me who saw, felt, and experienced the carnage of Beirut in the midst of so much chaos. To this day, I still smell the, the smells. I can be driving down a highway when out of nowhere, the memory of smell strikes me. It's real to me, and I find myself pausing to confirm where I am. I have to realize that this is a residual memory triggered by some unseen blip in my mind that I have no control over. In some way, I feel these experiences tend to hijack my day because along with the smells come the emotional duress and deep anger I cannot seem to let go of. Wow. Thank you, brother. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I, I, I just think when I read it, it was so powerful listening to you, you just realize, you know, you were a young man, you know, I, I, I did some training videos with the Marine Corps. It was the first time I actually got cl- uh, up close and personal with them. And when I did it, I was older and I didn't realize until I got down to Pendleton, how young these, uh, uh Marines were and the emissions that they were called upon. And so just looking back from my experience, it blew my mind because I realized, because you know, you see movies and you think they're older and they're, you know, exp- yeah. and you're like, there's, this is young people putting- in kids. It's we're like, kids. Help, right? Yeah, we, we, I, was, I, was, I was just a young man. I, I, I didn't become a man until I was 30. Mm. I was 19 in Beirut. Wow. 
I didn't even know who I was. I just knew I wanted a better life. And I knew that serving my country was a path towards a better life. You know, for people, and I think this is true now, even more so for civilians who don't have any uh, experience or contact with the military, you know, not knowing, like you said, it was a path to a better life. Most Americans don't have that experience and don't know what that um, people trying to serve their country is unless you get a chance to get up close and personal and see what uh, the Marines go. And I know for me, it was life changing to watch them go through their training it gave me a need to want to serve more because I watched them, how they were serving. So I couldn't serve in the military. I said, how else can I serve and what can I do? But your story right there, Dodosio, you know, everything about that of having, watching, and you're so graphic about it, you know, dealing with the, and then risking yourself to go over there. And then what's mind boggling is you go as a peacekeeper and you don't even have bullets to defend yourself. So the, the even further risk, that you're in, it, it's just, it's almost hard to imagine it. It's almost yeah. like even in a movie, you go, this ain't real, right? Um, but it was real on every level for yeah. you. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, I didn't realize how deeply I was struck by it until, until after I began uh, therapy over three decades later. Um, it was just, um, my life had been a roller coaster um, I was always first to get fired or, or laid off. Um, I was always um, considered a militant or overly aggressive or assertive. Um, it's just a, a, a series of, I pushed all of my family away at some point or another. Um, all of the things that I value, the thing about the PTSD that people have to understand is it's a way of our body to naturally protect us from a perceived threat, right? right? The problem is, is when you subject it to the traumatic experience, everything becomes the perceived threat. And so we have to learn to manage that and not allow the, the whispers of these threats to overwhelm us or overcome us. Uh, and we have to learn the tools so that we can manage ourselves away from the fabrication and into the reality that everything's okay. There isn't a sniper over there. There isn't a truck coming down the street that's going to blow up in front of your house. Your house, not right. your military house, your house. And so um, it just, it takes, it, ta it takes a lot to learn. Um, I've been, I'm a, an advocate for therapy. Um, I, it saved my life. Um, I'm, I continue to go even today. I've been now going through uh, to therapy with the VA for about 12 years now. So it, it's something that has allowed me to learn the tools I needed to manage how PTSD affects my life. Well, tell me a couple of things or tell us a couple of things. Obviously, after that, that horrible uh, uh, incident and experience and that trauma that you went through in Beirut, how long did you stay in the military? And then I, I believe you not only were in the Marines, you also kind of got back in in the Air Force, right? So yes. tell us a little bit about that. And then I got a, a lot of other questions <laughs> on the, the trauma, but tell us that. And then I'm going to go a little further. Sure. So I stay. What's interesting is after Beirut, I knew I would not stay in the Marine Corps. Um, I did not like this. It was like I felt like the fish in the barrel. And anyone and everyone could take a shot at me. 
Mm. Personally, that's how I felt. So after that, I knew that the Marine Corps was not where I, I, would, not, would, I would not make a career out of it. Okay. So I did the rest of my time in the Marine Corps. And then a couple of years later, because I still didn't realize some of the goals I wanted, I went to the Air Force, where I served there for three years as well. Um, and I served the Air Force predominantly because, again, I wanted to have, create a better life for myself. Um, I didn't like my where I was living at the time. I was living in Savannah, Georgia at the time. I didn't like where I was living, and I wanted to leave the area. And I didn't want to do it um, haphazardly. I wanted to have a plan that I could uh, execute and, and make a successful move. So, you, you know, you come out of this and obviously, and, and I, I, once again, I'm just going to throw this up one more time, but people, please uh, get a chance to go on Amazon and read memoirs in the moment. It's just such a powerful story of dealing with uh, trauma, dealing with PTSD, dealing with turning the li his life around. Uh, please check out the book. But, you know, you come back and you're, you're dealing with uh, PTSD. You're dealing with this. And for people who don't know, it takes you three decades and you don't get therapy. You're dealing with all this trauma. It's affecting you. It's hurting your life. Yeah. Why don't you go for therapy? I was in denial. I right. was in so much. It was not me. It was the whole world. Everyone else had a problem. I was cool. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So to yeah. me, I, I was not able to make the connection. And what's interesting is my younger brother, when he first saw me when I came back, he told me, he said, something is wrong. Seem like you done gone crazy on us. You need some help. And I said, nah, it's nothing wrong with me. Everybody else has a problem. And when I, So I lived with it in denial for 30 years, over 30 years. And because of that, my life was a roller coaster, up and down, up and I was always angry. There was always something, someone out to get me. Um, I made some headways. I realized some goals, but then it would always... I would fall down to the bottom of the pit again. So it was up and down and up and down and up and down until finally uh, my wife mentioned to me uh, about maybe seven, eight years ago, she was like, no, excuse me. She was the one who initially got me to go to the VA and seriously um, work on my PTSD. The first thing is I had to admit that I had PTSD. Now, that in and of itself is still something that I'm grappling with, believe it or not. Wow. There are days when I just don't want to admit it. I don't want to acknowledge it. I don't even want to think about it. And, and, and why? Is it because, you know, I mean, we're men that, that being strong, you were Marine, being extra strong. I mean, is it that, that, you know, we're, we're, we're so strong, we're not supposed to be weak? Or is it more than that? Is it a combination of a bunch of things? What is it for you? For me, it's that, and it's also equally, it's about being able to acknowledge how I feel and why I feel this way. It's like you live, it, it, living with PTSD for me is like, always, it's like you live, how can I explain this? You live in the pit of hell, mm. but you can stick your head out and breathe every so often. Wow. That's what it's like. Because there's always some deep emotion that's just napping at me, trying to get me to become upset at someone. Be, to, 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 uh, there was a time when, when you could say, hey, man, how are you doing? How's your day going? And I would want to punch you in the face because I thought you were trying to get over on me. Wow. It was so, so there's, and then, and then the other side of that is then when you realize that you, you miss 
miss when, when you realize that how you're viewing a person is wrong, you feel guilty, you feel bad. You like, I don't want to feel bad about feeling angry about feeling this threat. So it becomes this vicious cycle that if you're not careful, you, it can suck the life right out of you and keep you in a very bad and dark place. Wow. So it, you know, so when you did go for therapy, uh, when you did that, it took, it took a, a leap of courage. It took mm -hmm. a leap of something for you to make that step forward yeah. and then, and then to continue, then yeah. to continue and not walk away from it and get, and say, I ah, forget that I don't need that. Right. So it took the courage to continue that, to keep trying to heal your life. So tell us a little bit about that process and about the healing process. Yeah, that was actually, um, I have to say my wife saved my life. Mm. Um, we were in Philadelphia at the time and I had had other relationships prior to this one, but she was the first woman who ever said to me, I notice at night you're screaming in your sleep, you're calling for a sergeant, um, you're fighting somebody, all these different things are happening. And it seemed like this is something that I cannot manage. I can't help you. I don't know how to help you. Maybe you should go talk to someone. Wow. But at the time, I was still somewhat in, in uh, denial. So I said, yeah. well, okay, I'll go do it. You know how we do. We'll say we'll go do something just so we can keep her quiet, right? <laughs> yes, very true. Well, that's what I went. And then in the span of that one first conversation, she said, you have some severe problems going on and we want to have you back here twice a week. Mm. So from that one, just do it, just to kind of appease my wife, that was where my journey to realization began. And then the other thing that happened that was most striking for me was about three months in, we were, I was in a session with my therapist at the time and, and I said something to effect, well, yeah, when I get finished the therapy and all this PTSD is gone, I'll be fine, right? <laughs> and she stopped me and she said, no, Didocio, that's not how it works. And I said, you mean I'm gonna have to deal with this the rest of my life? She said, yes, but the good news is that you'll be able to manage it and it won't be so impactful. Well, I cried like a baby. Uh, because all of, it was like the realization that no matter what I could do, I couldn't get away from this these dark emotions that were consuming me. Now, mm. that's how I felt in the moment. But the truth of the matter is, is years later, by practicing the things that you learn, you can get better. You can learn to feel better. You can learn to manage yourself away from the darker stuff and slowly get yourself up to a higher place. So it does happen. You just have to do do the work. You have to do the work. And you you, you obviously did. And when when did you decide to uh, write the book, the memoir? Uh, what gave you that decision to you know? Because that you know going through and opening up that story. Because that's the other side. When you you know when you write a memoir, I've written two. You know you have to open up the wounds. You have to relive it again as you're writing, right? Yeah. So what why did you decide to do that? When did you decide to do it? And what was that process like for you actually uh, beginning to re tell your story in a memoir? Sure. Um, so I wrote the book about three years ago, uh, at least when I started writing it, I should say. Um, the impetus for it was I've, I find that people really don't understand. People cannot relate to the experience because it's just 
it, it, it's corrupt. You know what I mean? You can't, you, it's hard to articulate what the, the life of a PTSD person is like. So I thought, well, I can write. So let me write some things down. Now, the process itself became therapeutic for me because it really caused me to safely, safely look at these areas in my life that I didn't, I never talked about. Mm. It's been, you know, when, in fact, my mom still doesn't know today all the, all the details around Beirut. Wow. Some people I just, you just never talked about because most people just can't understand. So, So I started writing the book as a way of just kind of maybe trying to shed some light on what the the life is like with PTSD. And then as I started writing, I I started feeling a a sense of uh, empowerment, if you will, where I knew that if I could just encapsulate what that moment experience was like, and and more importantly, the, the actions that I was portraying in life and how those were related to the PTSD, then I would actually be able to provide something that other people can look at and say, hmm, well, I'm doing that too. Maybe I might need to look at this for myself and see if I need to talk to someone and maybe get some support around this. So that was what it was all about. And then after people started reading it and I started getting feedback, it became clear to me that, yeah, this is definitely something that people would like to read. People want to know about it. Because of course, a lot of times when well, I came up from a place where, you know, anytime you had a mental problem, something was wrong with you, right? Right. Well, that's true. <laughs> you know, that's that's the irony of that's true. You have if something if you have a mental health problem, there is something wrong or something not so right. Right? Right. right. But we were taught, you know, you don't wanna you don't wanna tell anybody about your problem, you won't do any of that. And deny it. It's the it that is what actually perpetuates the negative uh, impact of, of PTSDs when you don't talk about it. So right. part of the re- part of for me, this process is all about helping. It's a bit of a form of therapy for me. It's about saying, "Hey, I'm okay. While wow, this did happen, I'm okay. And guess what? You can become okay too, because I really hope that the next person who reads it can pick up something and say, "Hey, you know what?" I'm the same way, or this happened to me as well, or I see things this way as well. Maybe I need to look at myself a little closer. And that's what it's about, just trying to help the next person. Well, I think that, that those are the two pieces you you address real strongly is one, obviously, it, it, it helps you. It helps you heal. It helps you cope. It helps you deal with life. But then it also gives you a purpose and mission as well yes. to take that experience to help others as well, because yes. you had this experience that maybe you've experienced both the pain, but also going through the healing process that they haven't done yet. And so mm-hmm. maybe you can encourage them to join and go into that process themselves yes. so they can get out of the place that they're stuck in and begin that process of healing themselves. So so you kind of serve both purposes with what you did with the book and in the work you do. Thank um, you. So I uh, appreciate that. Um, I'm going to, you know, go for, I'm going to just throw up a couple of pictures of you and you can tell okay. us a little bit about this. And then I want to go into your work today because okay. that's other stuff that I think that you, it's great to share. So these okay. are just some pictures I got, I think of, uh, yeah. I don't that was, you know. That was me with the Commandant of the Marine Corps. We were invited to the White House uh, about three years ago, four years ago um, to, to acknowledge our service in Beirut. 
Uh, so the president came out. It was all the, the dignitaries. It was a really big to-do. It was a great moment. It was a moment of acknowledgement for those who didn't make it. Mm. Uh, and those of us who could be there, there were maybe eight of us who were in the audience, maybe a little bit more, but about eight to 12, I would say. We were able to stand up and let ourselves be seen for others uh, in the audience to know that this was something that happened and we are still here. And is this other picture from uh, that time? That's when White House as well, yes. White House as well, yes, yeah, a great picture. Um, so going forward, you know, there's a lot. You worked in a, a bunch of different community organizations, service organizations, but now you're part of an organization in the Antelope Valley, uh, Hummingbird Haven, yes. which, um, let me see if this, uh, this is just uh, some of the stuff that you've done, the Veterans Crisis Line. Yes. Um, but... Um, let me see if there's another picture of that. Yeah, here's another picture of your your site that you got thrown up there. But tell us a little bit about that. You're a co-founder of uh, what does that program do? Yeah. Uh, who does it serve? And and that's, you know, when I met your wife, you know, uh, she, powerful woman, by the way. And Thank she you. just kind of, um, you know, it told me about some of what's going on. And I just said, wow, this is just some amazing stuff you guys are doing. So Thank tell you. us a little bit about that and how people can contact with you. And I know you told me you're developing some very unique tools to help people as well. So yeah. let's let, let's talk about that side of the story so, now. So Hummingbird Haven was actually formed. It's, it's the brainchild of my wife, Kim. Uh, having lived with someone who's dealing with PTSD for so long, she, she has an intimate understanding of what that life is like and what it can be like, the highs and the lows. And so we've always had some interest in providing support and working with community. Uh, and so it just happened that she wanted to do something specifically to help veterans and their loved ones who are living with PTSD. One of the things that we discovered early on as we started looking around is that oftentimes it's just the veteran who gets the support, not their loved ones. And I have to tell you, we need to support the loved ones as well because there's a thing called secondary traumatic stress disorder, which is a thing that happens to the loved one of a person who's living with PTSD because by virtue of the fact that they are connected to him or her, they have to shift the way they live their lives in order to maintain peace. Uh, it also could make it also could cause them to behave in other ways that aren't their normal way to operate. So we felt that we want to be able to provide support services to the veteran and their loved one so that we can help to build a stronger community. We all know anything is only as strong as its weakest link. And so we want to make sure we did that. So Hummingbird Haven is um, right now, we're building capacity so that we can offer free therapy. Um, 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 I'm sorry, free therapy. Um, we also want to provide wrap, access to wraparound services, uh, yoga, spa ex, ex, um, experiences, uh, and also retreats to get started. Um, so what we're doing is we're building capacity so that we can offer these services to the community to the veteran community here in the Antelope Valley, uh, but then of course replicated elsewhere as needed um, because the need is so great. Um, and so one of the things that we've done with Hummingbird Haven is we created the app that you just mentioned, the avvetsnet.app, which is an app that is developed to give uh, veterans in need connectivity to service within three minutes. 
Now it's currently in its beta testing phase because we wanna make sure that its features are relevant and needed and that any issues that may come up are addressed by our development team. But that's one of the things that we want to do to make it available to veterans right away. Some of the things that we've been doing right now is we've been providing fee, uh, food to some families that are in need. Um, and we also have been providing instruction. One of the biggest questions that I've seen coming up in the last, I'd say, six months is how do I get my DD-214? DD-214 is a document that's given to every veteran or every soldier when they leave the military, which is a statement that says, you served in this capacity from this date to that date, and you got um, you, you discharged honorably or whatever the case may be. But in order for veterans uh, to get access to services, they, that's the starting point at the VA and elsewhere in the community of veteran supporting organizations. And one of the biggest problems that veterans have is, of course, either they might lose it over the years, they might not you know, uh, uh, realize how important it is and discard it. So we set it up where it's real easy for them to access it. You can get it for free if you want. Uh, if you have time, if you need it right away, you can get it overnight as long as it exists. So we provided those kinds of services and trying to walk people through the process. The other thing is that a lot of veterans are trying to learn how to get the right, um, uh, right level of, of disability, whether it's 50%, 60%, or 70%. So I spend a lot of time talking to veterans about what that looks like, what they can expect, so on and so forth. I'm 100% right now because of how BTSD has affected my life. Other, other veterans may be at 20, 30, 40%. It's all depends. So we're trying to help veterans right here where they are, where they have a great need uh, to quickly move forward and provide information to help them in that way. And and how do they re, uh, how do you contact it up in the Antelope Valley? What's what's the contact number for you guys? Uh, so you can reach us at Hummingbird Haven at 661-664-434-0730. Yes. Or you can send an email to us at info at hummingbirdhaven.org. So that's uh, that's the number 661-434-0730. Yep. Or the other one is uh, email at... Yes, info at hummingbirdhaven.org. Okay. And that'll come to both myself and Kim, which means you're more likely to get responded to very quickly um, because it'll, be, it'll come to both of us. Uh, let me just put that up real quick. I'm about haven.org and um, throw that up there. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, yes. I'm about haven.org. Excellent. All right. So that's uh, ways to reach you and, and you'll continue and you're developing this app. So, and people can go on the website, your website to be yes. able to get more information as well. Yeah. Um, and on the website, you'll find a lot of um, helpful tools um that folk can use like for instance if if you suspect that your relative who served may be having some type of trauma there's some online tests that you can take or some different information that you can access so you can kind of look at check boxes and say is this happening is that happening and if it is it, that's not a diagnosis 
but that's a good indication that you may need to have your loved one to speak to someone or in some cases when your loved one may not want to speak to someone you can so that's the other piece that i think is important kim has actually gone to a couple of my sessions with me um, and i feel like that has been a tremendous uh, benefit to us because it did two things one is it gave legitimacy to what I was doing. Uh, and the other thing is it helped her to realize the scope and the depth of PTSD and how it can affect people. So it just created a win-win scenario. So I highly recommend where there's, where, where there's interest uh, that both parties attend a session just to learn about PTSD. You just never know. No, it sounds like it's, it's powerful. And like you said, the partner uh, being involved because A, the partner can be is always affected by it for yeah. sure. Um, so there's no there's no wall around the partner. The partner is always going to get the uh, um, the remnants or whatever of it. So, yeah. you know, being able to address both persons, yeah. the persons with PTSD as well as the partner is crucial and that you're doing that is great. And also, you know, um, the work that you're doing, I mean, I know, you know, uh, uh, you have a hotline too. if the uh, 988 is a veterans crisis line, if people are in crisis. And I know the um, in the sheriff's department, when I met your wife, Kim, when I spoke at this event at the VA, um, you know, the sheriff's department has a, a VMET program where they're focused on veterans who are in crisis on the street. Yes. And they they will interact with those veterans and, and, you know, treat them with respect, treat them with compassion and, uh -huh. and, and try to give them the uh, support that they need to overcome the crisis that they're in and help them move forward with their life. And it's a great it's a great program that the sheriff's department and, and the sheriffs I met at that event just they blew my mind because of their, you know, all of them were like, well, we operate out of love. And I was like, wow, wow. you know, hearing that from sheriffs, I was like, <laughs> I love I love that. You know, it just shows that, you know, they're doing they're doing good work and they're trying to really change yeah. people's lives. And that's what your program's doing as well yeah. To, yeah. to reach this uh, group of veterans. So yeah. keep, keep going. Tell us a little bit. Anything else you would like to share? Just FYI, the 988, that's not a Hummingbird Haven thing. That's a national thing that was done specifically to get veterans connected to real care. Unfortunately, we're losing too many veterans to suicide. And so we have to do what we can to try and promote their options. Now, I've been to the place where I was I was con considering suicide as well, so I can relate. Mm. I understand how you get taken so far down this dark road, you just don't see the light. I understand that, but we want to encourage everyone and let them know your life has value. It has meaning. You are important and valuable. No matter what you might be facing, you are important and valuable, and we want to help you to get to a place where you can feel it for yourself as well. Well, I'm, I'm going to play a quick 30-second commercial about an organization that is working with veterans on mental health nationwide, and I'd love to connect the two of you because they're okay. a great group. And then, of course, what you're doing in the Antelope Valley with Humminbird Haven is such powerful stuff. So I'm going to play this quick 30-second okay. commercial for them. Given Hour is committed to promoting mental health for life. We support and empower people on their mental health journeys by providing free and confidential therapy, peer support, and customized training. But we can't do this work alone. We need you. Help Given Hour to transform lives one day at a time with a monthly donation. 
visit givenhour.org forward slash give. Together, we can create a brighter tomorrow. Given Hour, mental health for life. Very good. Very good. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, I, I, I was introduced to them by some veterans and who've gotten free services from them uh, in L.A., but they're nationwide. And uh, I had the woman on, Dr. Trina, came on my show as well. But Because, you know, at the end of the day, more organizations need to cooperate and work together. Yes. What you're doing up in Antelope Valley is reaching a certain population. What they're doing is reaching other people. Mm -hmm. But the more cooperation between organizations to provide mental health services, especially not to veterans, we're focused on veterans, but others uh, yeah. as well is important. Um, yeah. And there's enough, there's enough room for everybody. Correct. I always say that the need is deep and wide, so the solution must also be deep and wide. And so we're all for it. I think that's great. I would love to see, I like to see collaboration. I think that we can do so much more by working together than we can as individuals. Uh, so I, I'm looking forward to it. That's all good. Thank you. So, you know, as we get close to finishing this up and, and summering, you, you've had a, a long, courageous life, one of service, because that's the other side. You served in two branches of, of military. You've obviously then served in the nonprofit arena by trying to help and change people's lives in that arena, too. So your life has been one of service throughout yeah. different forms. Um, yeah. And I think service, you know, I find and that's why I do this show, service and gratitude are some of the most powerful things you can do to have a good life when you're, mm -hmm. you know, you're able to commit to serving others, when you're able to get up and every day and be grateful for what you have, no matter what it is it lends itself to a better, a, a better life for you. Yeah. So I, I think you've done that in multiple ways throughout your life. So what are the messages that you would want to share, you know, to people given through your book, through your, your, your whole life and where you are today, what are the message you would share to other people as to what they can do to, mm -hmm. to basically, you know, be of more service to help change uh, lives of people who need the help? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I get emotional just thinking about that. For me, it's about just letting folk know that while people can, people want to understand, it's very hard for them to understand because you have to be there to get it, to understand. The best thing you could do for someone who may be going through a tra traumatic experience or might be living with PTSD is let them know first and foremost that you love them let them know that they are valuable and let them know that you will give them whatever space they need to process. One of the biggest problems that I've found in relationships when, when you're not, when, when, when living with PTSD is the other person will try to dictate to you how to be because they don't understand and they may mean well, but you can't, you can't, the emotions are so hard to just pull away from. It's like the fabric of your very existence is, is, is glued to it. And you have to find a way, you have in your own space, you have to find a way to move away from that. So folk have to understand, number one, just be supportive. Uh, and it's okay to seek help, seek information, and, and let the other person know that they're going to be there. I think the other thing is we have to become a more forgiving community 
in that you can't just look at a person who's going through something and, and think the worst of them. You, I feel like, especially a veteran who served. The, the, the other thing that I think is most important is that two people can experience the same event, right? And have two different traumatic experiences around it. So what's PTSD or how PTSD affects me may affect the next person in a different way. 100%. And so folk have to understand that and that the, the good news, which I do say the good news is that there's more conversation around it now than it used to be. When I got out, you couldn't talk about it. Right. You just couldn't talk about it. You set yourself up for a less than honorable discharge if you did, right? So when I got out, and I got out in Marine Corps in 85, um, um, when I that's how it was. So today there's a lot more conversation around it, which means that we're more likely to succeed than in the past. So I'm, that's very hopeful to me. That's very um, motivating for me to help me see that we are, as a country, we are thinking about this, I think, in the right way and in a better way. I agree. I agree totally. And, and once again, I, I thank you, Diosio, for being on the show. Thank you for sharing your journey. I recommend people check out your book, The Memoir, uh, uh, Memoirs in the Moment and uh, on Amazon, that if anybody is in the Antelope Valley, that you go check out um, and you need help, Veterans Humminbird Haven, and you have the phone number, it's been on the thing, and, and you, uh, you know, once again, thank you for, I appreciate everything Pleasure. you've done in your life for this country and for the veterans and for the people, you know, you continue to serve. So I, I appreciate you. And I think we all appreciate you for doing all that. Thank so you, uh, thank you very much. Any, any closing words that you have? Otherwise I'll wrap out the show. Closing words. Again, again, I appreciate the opportunity to share with you uh, to those who are watching and listening. I would say, just know that things do get better. You have to do the work. Uh, but things do get better. And doing the work can seem a little bit foreign or strange, even scary at times, because it's an unknown. But if you look at what you have versus what you could have, doing the work and getting what you could have is always more valuable, in my view. Well said, man. Thank you very much, brother. I appreciate you for being on the show. And uh, I look forward to seeing you in person and meeting yes, you in person. So Indeed. thank you. Have, you. have a fantastic week. Thank you. Me too. Thank you. All right. I uh, hope that everyone enjoyed the show and was inspired by uh, Diodosio Habib's life and his journey uh, from Beirut, from being a Marine through PTSD, through healing and through service. So once again, thank you. And if you haven't seen my previous 36 podcast shows with some of the amazing, courageous friends sharing their powerful stories of overcoming all odds and going on to live powerful lives and making a difference in the world. You can watch them on my John Duffy Live Courageously YouTube channel. I have another 75 friends planned to be guests on my future shows. So please subscribe to my uh, YouTube channel at Duff Square Film and keep coming back every Sunday at 2 p.m. And um, may you choose to live courageously and make your life a masterpiece. And God bless until next week.